I was I was really uh, excited about how much the patients were willing to adopt new technology. Uh, they were, you know, they wanted to text uh, to or use online consultations, and there was um, like that shift of going from calling up to uh, sending an email or sending an online consultation. They were very receptive to here. We have this new platform. Please fill out the query, and we'll respond within. Uh, 24 hours, you know, that that willingness to change as we implemented new software and engage with it was was really amazing. From Redox and Healthcare Strategy Bullpen, welcome to Diagnosing Health Tech, the show where we talk about healthcare and the technology driving it with the most interesting leaders in the industry. Good afternoon or good morning, Health Tech. Uh, I'm Jeff Englander. I'm the founder and principal of Healthcare Strategy Bullpen. We are coming to you, or at least I am coming to you, from New York and the Node Health Digital Medicine Conference. Uh, good morning, Elizabeth. I am joined by our wonderful co-host, Elizabeth Ojo, who is a licensed pharmacist and co-host extraordinaire. Good morning, Elizabeth. Hey, Jeff. Really nice to thank you for having me back on this show. I really enjoy um, being on here. Calling in from not hot Atlanta, cold Atlanta this morning, <laughs> but definitely excited to jump into our topics. Yeah, we had snow yesterday. I was not expecting that. Um, well, we're going to depend on Namrata for the warmth. Namrata Ristogi uh, is joining us. Namrata is a medical doctor, and Namrata has uh, been kind enough to join us from uh, California. Namrata is uh, on the health advisory board of Palantir Technologies. Namrata also is a former digital transformation advisor for the National Health Service. Uh, and uh, we wanted to welcome you, Namrata, and um, you know, just tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently. And then we've got a wonderful series of questions for you. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Elizabeth. And hi to our audience. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the pod. Um, I am in sunny California. It is a little bit warmer than Atlanta uh, in San Francisco. Um, so yeah, I'd love to share a bit about my background, what I'm doing at the moment, and uh, let me dive in. So right now I'm uh, on the Health Advisory Board at Palantir Technologies. As you mentioned, um, Palantir has a contract with the NHS to do various different care delivery projects. Um, they ran the COVID vaccine uh, delivery project for the NHS and also have worked on other projects such as re reducing uh, the waiting list for planned care. Um, they've also just won a contract to provide the federated data platform, which is a back-end data platform to uh, run the uh, health records for the, the population in the UK and use that to derive insights and provide better care and better managed care for, for the NHS. Um, I, you also mentioned that I was digital transformation advisor for a health system, and um, that's where uh, the uh, topic of uh, today came about, the digital front door. I was an advisor to the NHS Frimley Integrated Care Board, um, and that uh, role started during the pandemic to drive innovation within the health system. Well, that's wonderful, Namrata. Um, and uh, Namrata and I got acquainted during uh, COVID. And you know, one of the things I found fascinating, Namrata, as you talked about what you did in terms of um, the digital transformation and the digital front door, was some of the research in terms of helping bring people in and understand some of the barriers they had to care, including both the digitally excluded and some of the work you you did all the way down to interviewing the actual receptionists. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the, the breadth and depth of, of that work and, and how you uh, strove to understand, um, you know, what clients and patients were facing. Yeah, absolutely. So the UK primary care, um, it's an, it's a, fully government funded uh, service and there's a, as a result there's a high demand on the services. We have an aging population, we have um, very small amount of funding per patient 
for each practice. Uh, it's about £163 per patient per year, so funding is limited. And then there's a shortage of primary care providers and also a shortage of primary care trainees. Um, there's a lot of infrastructure that's uh, very archaic and there's some inefficient administrative processes and as a result uh, what we were faced with um, at the time of the pandemic was you know uh, queuing on phone lines uh, all appointments gone by 8.03 a.m and um, misallocation of the available appointments that there were in the practice and um, also physicians just burning out because they're just not unable to keep on top of the demand and what we were what we found was in in the pandemic there was a, a mind shift and in, in how we approach looking after patients from a, a digital perspective you know there was new policy reimbursement changes for consulting remotely um, there was technology and infrastructure computers laptops that were delivered to practices to support uh, communications there were um, and also there were there was a movement towards remote monitoring online consultations and uh, email communication between patients and uh, clinicians so I joined the innovation team leading digital transformation for the health system which is a health system of 1.4 million patients and um, there were 70 practices within that region and the idea was to understand how we redesign our access points through apps, through the phones, through the websites to enable more people to access care in a more efficient way and identify who is not able to access care and design the system to enable them to, to get the care they need. So that's where the, the digital, digital Front Door project came in and um, what we found was we we had some key pillars that we needed to address so mm. the primary one was navigation and uh, that was all about uh, understanding who who you can see as a patient entering the health system without waiting three weeks to see a, a physician right. so who was available to book directly as an NHS patient, there were counsellors, there were pharmacists, there were podiatrists, smoking cessation advisors, midwives, health visitors, uh, all these um, clinicians that you could book with rather than waiting three weeks. So that really helped to move people to, to the right place at the right time. And then there's, there were also uh, opportunities for social determinants of health. So uh, what else could you access? You could access community resources such as housing associations, citizens advice, uh, um, job opportunities, jobs boards, uh, job centres, all those sorts of things. And then relevant health information. So we um, wanted to provide uh, on our websites an approved apps library, so verified health information, trusted resources for mm -hmm. conditions. And um, so we wanted to uh, understand which apps were HIPAA compliant or the equivalent to DTAC compliant and get those to patients so they could get that relevant information and then optimize the use of the appointments on the ground that were available for people to come in who needed to be seen and optimize the appointments of people who could be seen remotely or people who needed to be seen in their home. That really sounds like a, a Herculean task. Now, how did you, you know, you mentioned kind of steering people to the appointments that were available. What was involved in kind of figuring out, okay, if someone was really coming in to see maybe a primary care doctor but needed smoking cessation, how did you figure out uh, to make those uh, visible and available to patients and to let them know that they could kind of skip that initial step and uh, as I think we talked about in the pre-call uh, maybe go to physical therapy or maybe go to directly to an MSK doctor how did you to figure out to, to let them know that those those page those slots were available 
Yeah, so there were multiple ways that we shared the the uh, transformation work that was going on in 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 the health system, and uh, everything from advertising on our websites, advertising in our waiting rooms, the receptionist on the phone talking about the new digital front door and and navigation systems, and the other thing that we did was uh, we invited a patient participation group. So uh, a patient participation group involved uh, about 20 people from our practice population. The practice population of my own practice was eight and a half thousand patients and they would meet uh, quarterly. So they were um, people from a diverse range of ages, ethnicities, cultures, um, occupations and uh, health conditions. And we would invite them and engage them in understanding what we're trying to accomplish here and get their feedback on board about what kind of health services that they would like to access and where the unmet needs are in the community. And uh, that really helped to uh, spread the the trans transformation work and encourage people to use the the new ways of working to access the care. Elizabeth? That was actually going to be my question, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> but I do know, but Namrat, I'm really, you know, I love hearing the excitement that you have um, for this. And I, you know, love this mission that you have of, you know, intelligently not only matching patients to the available providers um, that are available for um, whatever service they need, but also actually advertising, right? That these are now options that people can can have because a lot of patients reflexively will pick up the phone and want to talk to someone, but may not be understanding that they can go on the website or have other points of access to these appointments. So I love this advertising campaign that that y'all um, undertook. Can I ask a little bit, what um, structures did y'all put into place to sort of measure outcomes, right? Like as these points of entries are changing for patients, um, did you have some sort of way to measure whether or not patient outcomes remain um, the same or better, um, even as we're adopting, um, you know, uh, digital forms of care and things like that? That's a great question. Um, so one going back to Jeff's question as well and tying that in with what your question is, um, we wanted to understand who was able to access care within the population and who was not able to access care within the population. And so we were fortunate to have a data analytics software for the patient population for, for the 1.4 million people and we could understand trends um, so we could from that data identify at the beginning of the uh, project that 6% of the population uh, in my particular practice were excluded from the digital work that we were doing. That's a lot uh, of people. Yeah. And, uh, so then it was a case of understanding well who are those six percent is it because there are older people there are various different reasons why you can be digitally excluded it could be age it could be english not being your first language it could be um inability like lack of skill computer skills it could be uh, homelessness and uh, so we really needed to break that down and identify who those people are and um the uh, the incredible thing about it is when you work in a rural practice your receptionists actually know who exactly those people are by name so um even with the patient population that you you mentioned 8400 that seems like an awful large panel size yes i mean we've had uh, receptionists at the practice for 30 years wow. so they do know the people who come in and have a chat and uh, wow. people use the phone rather than the um the internet so um, but in any case, we did use tech to identify those people and then design population health interventions to, to, to get those people accessing care and then remeasure the digitally excluded population based on our interventions. So um, there's been some really interesting work um, at the health system on uh, improving access. And I'd just like to share a couple of those interventions. Yeah. So, so one of them was in a particularly deprived area in the, in the patch uh, where digital literacy was very low. Um, the the health system funded digital literacy classes to teach people how to use computers and tech and how to access the primary care resources that we were building so these were computer 
classes hosted in the library uh, where people could come and learn for free about how to use their technology and then continue to use those resources, the computers and uh, devices to access their care or bring their own smartphones and learn how to use them to schedule appointments and book appointments. So that, that was one about improving digital literacy and there was data to support uh, a significant improvement in technology skills at the end of the project. It was three months, three month intervention. Mm -hmm. um, the 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 other thing is identifying who has connectivity and who doesn't have uh, connectivity and who's using a smartphone versus Wi-Fi and um, enabling connectivity for those people. So we found that a lot of people needed to use uh, had phone access but no connectivity. So we needed right. to make sure that all services that we were trying to provide. Uh, for patients were available on the phone if they couldn't use a uh, uh, computer or, or a data, data device. And and that's where full functioning capability was built in, in terms of even the navigation work that we did. We built a yeah. care navigation platform that was specifically tailored to, to uh, navigate and triage people through through the phone systems um, and I can talk more about that in a minute because it's it's quite an interesting project we did about uh, design thinking but just going back staying with the digital inclusion we also identified that we had a huge Nepalese population in our area so English was not their first language and um, as a result we could see they were not accessing appointments for say diabetes mm. care or um, they weren't accessing services for say menopause care or uh, heart disease so we could see that the appointments weren't being used by these people whose uh, first language was Nepalese and um, as a result we uh, implemented a um, training day or education day where one of our uh, one of our trainees who spoke Nepalese as a first language invited all the Nepalese community to come and come mm -hmm. through the practice and uh, go through chronic disease management, go through opportunities to engage with the practice and how they can book a translator if they want to come and see a clinician. Mm -hmm. um, so some really interesting projects that were going on. Um, one other thing which is super interesting I think is um, using non-traditional healthcare providers to provide care. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm, I'm talking about things like uh, commu community faith uh, leaders mm. uh, who deliver health interventions, um, or food banks, or food delivery companies. Um, we found that during COVID, vaccination uptake was, was low in certain pockets of the community. And mm. by delivering nudges uh, or education, in these places where uh, people were attending. Mm -hmm. Meet the people where they are, like where they yeah. hang out, yeah. Exactly, so um, that helped to increase COVID vaccine uptake by educating people in their communities by people that they trusted um, about um, what the vaccination involved and, and um, how they could access those appointments. How can, can you, you know, one of the things, um, we actually just talked about here at the conference um, was building trust with public health officials. Mm. And you know, one of my great frustrations in a project we worked on was that there's an over-reliance, uh, at least in this country, on surveys, whether it be an email survey or you know an actual hard copy mail survey of, you know, hey, how did you like your doctor's visit? Please rate it one to five. Uh, you know, and when you try to do that in 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 your communities, you you get nothing, and or you'll hear from the person who's most disgruntled. Yeah. You know, how did you bring those people? You know, how did you bring community leaders into your fold, and how did you get them or 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 bring in their trust and say, hey, help us? You know, right. you're really the, the 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 group that the community looks to, um, and particularly with the vaccine, where there was some skepticism. Yeah, so. One thing is to ask the patients um, to go out and ask them, you know, who do you trust? Who do you want relevant health information from? Mm -hmm. um, we've seen this with the MMR vaccine and the reduced uptake um, in primary care. And, um, under, and what they told us was they want, in that particular population, it was the, 
the mums who um, wanted more health education about vaccines, they wanted they wanted information from a doctor. But in the COVID vaccination um, situation, they they wanted someone information from someone who spoke the same language, mm-hmm. and. Um, it, it's really about going out and asking them what is the reason that you haven't taken this vaccine can we help you understand it better and um, providing information in, in a language that's um, that they feel comfortable and it was the primary uh, reason for for not having done it already mm-hmm. so um, it's really interesting what you find out when you go out and talk to your customers mm-hmm. Um, but community leaders, yeah, I mean, there are various organisations in the UK that help you find the right patient population, the right, the right leaders and the right um, okay. patients to to help you. Uh, there's a, a patient advocate groups that you can engage with mm. that represent communities um, and, and tap into their skills and experience. I, Interesting. Did you I, have a follow-up, Elizabeth? Or go ahead, Imran. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to uh, interrupt. I just want to go back to your point about the um, receptionists and engaging oh, in, uh, design thinking. So, so um, as part of the telephone triage project that we did uh, in the practice, um, it, it started off in our practice with eight and a half thousand patients. And the idea was that if it works and if we learn something, we'll scale it up to the health system for 1.4 mm-hmm. million patients. And so what we built was, um, we started off with design thinking and design thinking is something that I learned to, at Stanford on the MBA program, which is going out and understanding the pain points of your customers before you even begin to build a solution. So you can really understand what, what the problems are and, and build something that's tailored to their needs. And um, so for that reason, I started off with the receptionists in the practice and I said, okay, we need to build a care navigation tool supposedly uh, if there was such a, if, if, if there was such a product what does it what 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 are the biggest pain points mm-hmm. that you as receptionists face on a daily basis when uh, you get come into work in the morning what 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 makes your work challenging what makes your uh, day hard what keeps you up at night and and so they list 10 20 issues you know appointments gone by 803 or uh, aggressive patients on the phone or not being able to speak to the right clinician to get some advice at the time that they need it to make a decision about what to do with that particular patient on the phone um, and then so that was one pocket of data and then it was what do you think are the biggest challenges that the patients are facing what do they tell you when they ring up what are they most uh, what, what kind of conditions are they calling for what are the common things that they ask um, and so that was another pocket of data and then it was a case of what do you think the the biggest challenges that the um, physicians and admin uh, team are facing uh, in in the um, day-to-day running of a, of a primary care practice and we and that was you know a huge administration burden spending an extra third of time doing notes at the end of the day yeah. Uh, so we mapped out all these pain points and then as a result came up with a navigation tool that would prompt the receptionist on for any condition they put into the tool services that were directly available for the patient to book themselves or without a GP appointment and also um, how for each condition how quickly to prioritize uh, yeah. Person being seen, do they need an urgent appointment on the day, face to face with a clinician? Can they send an online consultation through the website, which will go to an admin manager and be dealt with within 24 hours? Mm-hmm. Uh, can they submit a prescription that will get signed off um, within uh, three working days? So it was uh, a, a, a comprehensive tool that was built on the needs of the practice that we then piloted out to see if we had really understood what problems we were solving. Mm-hmm. You, it really sounds like you were incredibly thorough mm-hmm. and incre- incredibly solicitous of uh, people, which I think was is really necessary. Um, Elizabeth, did you have a follow-up or? I, I had maybe a different question. Um, Go ahead. 
wanted to go in that route. I'm really curious to hear, Namrata, the because you mentioned earlier, you know, one of the main issues we're trying to solve is that clinician or physician burnout, right? And I'm really curious to hear what material effect that this, you know, new um, increased patient access and navigation or smart routing has done, because I feel like there's almost this paradox of um, we increase patient access, right? And maybe um, uh, route them to mid-level clinicians or other places where they can get their information. But the people whose schedules have were full in the past are probably still full today. So I'm curious to know if there's been any like material effect or any measured effect that you've seen to improve that kind of like burnout that you were seeing previous to the solution. Yeah, that's such a great question. And uh, I think the the important thing to, to realize here is we are working against a, an uphill battle. So the more we um, implement uh, new technology and software, we're also continue to, continuing to face funding shortages. Uh, yeah. We're continuing to lose clinicians. Nurses are, are leaving the, pro, the profession. And uh, so, each, each day, even though we implement software and, and um, technology to try and make things more efficient, we are facing an uphill battle. Yeah. Uh, but I do think there has been an improvement in morale, mm. an improvement in um, well-being, um, within uh, an improvement in, say, stress levels between the clinicians from using, having these tools to, to support them in, uh, and also having uh, a, a supportive w workforce that collectively manages care. That's good. Um, the yeah, it it is tricky and it's not measured in an objective way. Right. What we, have, we what we have seen is, for example, implementing an AI automation platforms for a back-end ad administration we we um, purchased a software that would uh, reduce um, that would automate new patient registrations mm. so it was a software that was brought into the practice to uh, automatically register new patients that would save the the admin team five hours of work um, mm. and and so they would that is just been implemented, but it was an objective measure of reducing workload. And as the platform develops more capabilities to automate backend um, administration, we should see a reduction in, in workload for, for admin teams. Uh, so it's it's um, incremental, right? And, um, but there are points to measure the um, the efficiencies. So, Namrata, I have a little bit of a separate question uh, as well there's a tendency to of clinicians to kind of look down on marketing and marketing research and uh, some of the design thinking you even talked about, um, but that seemed to be incredibly beneficial. How did you uh, incorporate or recruit the physician's support for what you were doing? Because in the end, it seemed to be incredibly helpful to them but uh, initially, I imagine there was some resistance, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that. That's such a great point, yes. <laughs> um, so not everybody is as excited about technology or new technology or changing the way uh, that we do things, particularly if it's been done a certain way for 30 years. Yeah. And um, so there is um, a lot of work that needs to be done in key stakeholder engagement. and. Um, I think what what it what I've learned is first you um, you have to engage them from the beginning and you have to engage a diverse team. So building software is not just about clinicians; it's about the admin teams, it's about the chief technology officer. There's a digital change manager. There's patient participation groups. There's um, you you have named digital champions in your uh, community so it's about getting around a table together and understanding what we're trying to solve and why we're trying to solve it and, and, and when there is a purpose behind what you're trying to solve people get on board and say okay I'll try it and mm. but, but you you have to be uh, prepared to pull back and say okay this didn't work and I'm sorry that it was um, a technical uh, it wasn't it didn't go as planned 
Right. I'll give you an example. Uh, we implemented a, a piece of software for our um, triage. So mm -hmm. a platform that could help us triage the, the sickest patients and flag them to a clinician sooner. And um, the platform didn't integrate with our EHR. So on the day it was implemented, we had a problem where it didn't integrate. And for, for our clinicians and for our admin teams, the idea of them having to manually copy and paste right. the consultation that the patient has provided on the on the website or the app and it's saving it in the record was a huge administration burden. If there are, I imagine you were very popular that day. Yeah, I see you have a hundred contacts a day from patients in your practice and you yeah. have to copy and paste them into the, the records to save the information to do anything about it. You know, that's unacceptable administration right. burden. Yeah. You have to be able to say, look, I'm sorry, this wasn't the right thing. We, we missed it. We thought it was going to be addressed in time for implementation, but it hasn't been and, and we're, we're pulling out. Um, and you have to respect your colleagues and, and, and say, OK, I, um, I'm sorry that we have put you through this training for this piece of software and, and we're just going to shelve it and find something better. So I think being honest about it and saying and not putting them and understanding there uh well and willing, and willing to admit when something's not working you know yeah. i think that's very admirable you know willing to unplug the software after you've seen it's not working i think i think there's a lot of you know really high people who wouldn't have um admitted right that they made a mistake so really hats off to you and your team yeah. <laughs> one other question that, that i had was um were there any discoveries you had uh, in terms of either design thinking or the project overall that were surprising to you, either positive or negative? Oh, that's a great question. Um, for me, I think the most surprising thing was how um, I was I was really uh, excited about how much the patients were willing to adopt new technology. Uh, they were, you know, they wanted to text uh, to or use online consultations. And there was um, like that shift of going from calling up to uh, sending an email or sending an online consultation. They were very receptive to here we have this new platform. Please fill out the query and we'll respond within uh, 24 hours. You know, that that willingness to change as we implemented new software and engage with it was was really amazing and and one last question and and uh you know while we're queuing this up i'll just ask if there are any questions um you know from the audience uh if there are please feel free uh to you know pose your question to namrata um but one last question from me and then uh, i apologize elizabeth i've been dominating if there's anything you wanted to add namrata what would you advise someone you know, who was going to take this kind of initiative, um, you know, from your experience, any any particular advice you would give them? Do you mean as someone who wants to implement digital transformation within their... Yeah, like a digital, someone who's starting or has, has, you know, is not satisfied with what's going on with their digital front door, um, you know, yeah. what would you tell them to do? Go out and talk to your patients, go and talk to your uh, workforce, your team, and uh, understand where the pain points really are. Okay, great. Anything from your end, Elizabeth? I think maybe one last question, if that's okay. Um, speaking of pain points, um, I'm curious if you've noticed specific challenges that are unique to, you know, for the UK versus the US. If, um, just if you've noticed any trends or specific um, something surprising in the ways, um, you know, you, the U.S. and U.K. may handle patient navigation or digital transformation. I'm curious to understand if you've seen like any specific differences or something that surprised you between the two different um, countries. Yes. So the main difference is the billing and reimbursement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
So in the NHS, you want to be as as efficient as you possibly can. Your primary care is there's funding for £163 per patient per year. Very Mm. limited. There's a huge shortage of appointments. And you want to be uh, getting that patient to where they need to be as soon as possible. And um, you want to uh, enable them to help themselves. In the US, where um, there's uh, reimbursement and uh, reimbursement at every stage, there's a tendency to bring people in, have more than one consultation with a provider, request some investigations that may not be as necessary. And so um, it's a balance between helping people to get where they need to go and also uh, providing them with a higher level support and uh, sending them to one or more provider to get them to where they actually need to be. Strange, the US is a little more complicated than the rest of the world, shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Namrata, we we, we really wanna thank you um, and we really appreciate it. Um, uh, Thanks so much, uh, you know, for your time and your insights. Yeah. Um, and, and look forward to connecting with you again. Um, and I know I will see you out at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in a couple of weeks, and and I'm super excited about that. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank Thanks you so very much. much. So with that, we will move on to our quick takes. Um, and in our quick take section, we're just going to talk about a couple of stories, a uh, handful of stories that are in the news today. Uh, first is CVS plans to overhaul how much drugs cost. Uh, so a story from the Wall Street Journal. CVS is switching to what they call a cost plus payment model. Uh, they're going to call the payment model cost advantage, where CVS retail pharmacies and other payers will be paid based on the amount that CVS paid for the drugs, plus a markup and flat fee to cover the services involved in handling and dispensing the productions. This will be phased in starting in the first half of 24. First for people using cash and a discount card, uh, much like much like Mark's Cuban com- Mark Cuban's company, and then in 2025 for employer plans. Uh, the company is responding to criticism from lawmakers, employers, and patients about the complexity and the um, you know uh, the difficulty in figuring out how much or lack of transparency in how drugs are bought and sold. Uh, and, you know, CVS and other middlemen are looking for ways to stem the tide of regulatory backlash on drug parsing. Um, and, you know, this may help. Uh, my feeling is that there will be severe or um, more regulatory um, consequences, particularly in the U.S. Uh, or particularly in, in uh, this Congress uh, in terms around drug pricing. Uh, next story was uh, on AI um, from Politico, driving Google's healthcare business. Washington uh, doesn't know what to do about it. Um, and the crux of the story was Google wants to make your cell phone a doctor in your pocket that relies on the company's artificial intelligence. Um, Google has assembled a very potent lobbying team to influence the rules governing AI just as regulators start writing them. Congress and competitors are concerned the company's using its advanced AI in healthcare before the government's had a chance to drop guardrails. Um, competitors, particularly small ones, worry that Google is moving to corner the market and to help fashion the rules that would be easy for large companies like Google, Amazon, and uh, Microsoft, where we are today, um, to uh, you know, fashion the rules. Uh, in, in particular, you know, Google is piloting AI with Mayo Clinic researchers. They have an assistant with HCA Healthcare that's using to write clinical notes for physicians and nurses. And uh, unlike Google's partnership with Ascension, they appear to be trying to get ahead of the problems they had with regulators before they arise. The concern from regulators and legal experts and startups is that AI will infiltrate healthcare before legislators can really get their hands around it. Um, I think that is true. You know, the technology is moving so, so fast uh, that it's virtually impossible for legislators to keep up. Uh, You know, there's commentary here today that there are only three legislators in the U.S. Congress actually have any formal education around AI. One of those is in school now. So I think it's going to be very difficult, um, you know, for Congress to keep up. I think there'll be a pendulum swinging the other way. You'll see some uh, regulation that may be overkill. 
I would say that the companies, uh, smaller companies, should and the industry as a whole should stay vigilant for some overreaction. Also, uh, changes in physician electronic health record use with the expansion of telemedicine. Some informatic researchers from UCSF found that both during and outside of scheduled hours, an uptick in telehealth uh, required the use of ambulatory physicians to spend more time working in the EHR. Uh, the overall time ambulatory physicians spent uh, documenting EHRs during uh, uh, physician working hours increased from 6.35 during the before the pandemic, excuse me, to uh, over eight uh, in September, 2021. And the crux of the article is that policymakers and system leaders need to keep these demands and clinicians times in mind as they uh, look at future reimbursement models and workflows. I think this is incredibly important because I think the, you know, uh, reimbursement schemes to date have been uh, based a lot on cost economics and the economics of whether you're actually in a physical office and you have assistance and others helping you. And I think they need to shift more to the value that's brought to these appointments and how they can steer patients. And I think there'll be an ongoing debate, but I hope to see more um, reimbursement based on the value of telehealth and other digital health tools. Um, uh, showdown here, the FTC chief was tough on private equity's takeover of healthcare. Uh, the FTC and DOJ uh, signaled they'd apply more scrutiny to private equity acquisitions in healthcare, including so-called roll-up deals in which a large provider groups buy smaller groups in the local market. What they're talking about here is PE acquisitions of uh, physician groups in, when recent years have moved uh, about concerns about the mounting impact on healthcare costs, quality of care, and providers' clinical autonomy. Uh, there was some commentary, um, you know, that this is a pretty common roll-up strategy uh, from some folks at the Brookings Institution. Uh, the FTC has been pretty lax on monitoring these roll-ups as there is a dollar limit, uh, and it's right now about $111 million, and the threshold has not been adjusted. Uh, we do expect more focus from the FTC and DOJ going forward. Uh, there's currently a lawsuit against Walsh, Carson, Anderson, and Stowe. Um, and, you know, we would expect this to be an area of additional scrutiny. Uh, we do expect the, you know, potential Cigna deal um, with Humana, if there is one, to face additional scrutiny, um, and it could face some tough flooding. And last but not least, 23andMe confirms that the hackers stole um, Ancestry data on 6.9 million users. Uh, in this case, it was a really interesting story. Um, hackers access to personal health information of about five and a half million people who opted into 23andMe's relatives feature. The stolen data included the person's name, birth year, and relationship labels. Um, what's interesting about this, in December 23andMe disclosed that the breach only affected about 1%, 0.1%, excuse me, of their customers, or 14,000 people. But in reality, the breach was known to affect roughly half of the company's reported 14 million customers. And I think the crux of the story here is it's important to understand before you go public and before you talk about these, the full extent of the damage and how to control this before you go public and what data has been released. Um, so I think that's really important and a, a really a lesson there. Um, so with that, um, let's shift to our articles for discussion and we'll bring Elizabeth back in. Thank you for your patience there, Elizabeth. Uh, quite a number of articles. Uh, first article, which I know is of interest to both of us, is what it's like living with limited access to internet in the rural South. And this was a wonderful article from the markup about um, the lack of progress in getting internet in the rural South. And one of the things they talked about, certain areas in the rural South, as many as 30 to 35% of people really lack internet access and, and have difficulty uh, when they, even though when they do have access, getting quality internet access, and I think really a national tragedy. Uh, wondering what you know what your comments would be here. Well, I, I think these numbers would really surprise people. I mean, imagine if um, a whole portion of the U.S. didn't have access to running water. <laughs> you know, the access to internet is just as important as necessary in today's you know, um, moving and fast paced world is, I would say just about any other resource. And it is a shame that time and time again, we see um, a trend in certain states that they are just 
behind in certain in making that kind of progress, especially for their marginalized um, for these marginalized communities, because, you know, you noted there's about 30 to 30 percent of these households in these um, rural southern states don't have access to the Internet. Um, but of course, th that percentage is higher um, for um, minority groups, especially um, the black residents who live in these states. And I think truly it's, it's an embarrassment. Um, we saw yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, go on. No, no, I'm just I'm just agreeing with you. I, I absolutely I think it's an embarrassment. Yeah, we saw that there um, is, uh, President Biden has made available some funding um, to um, hopefully be able to um, address this specific um, this specific need to implement the broadband access for these communities. I think at this point, and I know that the funds are being dispersed over the next few years, but I would say that if these community leaders wanted to, they could have done it by now. I mean, it's 2023, basically 2024, and these communities are basically having to live as if you know it, we're, we're we're in the 80s or something before before this became ubiquitous. Yeah, and and I just want to add, um, you know, for people who think, okay, maybe this is with a specific cell phone company, or maybe this is just a specific person or you know strange particular community. Um, uh, as everyone knows, uh, and fans of the show, uh, my son was a reporter in rural Louisiana, a town called Monroe, a very small town. And as a reporter, he's given a device which has uh, access to Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon. Uh, so he has effectively the best cell phone you could possibly get. And I asked him once, I said, what percentage of the time don't you get access? And he said 30 to 40% of the time he didn't have access to a signal. And so it's not just a, a, in a particular company. And the other thing is, is you know, this, this was happened in multiple communities. And I think the important thing is for providers and payers and others, you have to think about this when you're looking to deploy remote patient monitoring solutions, virtual health. And you have to think about not only A, just access, but how you know uh, you know thin or thick, so to speak, is the the throughput of the system you're trying to deploy? You know, might you need to deploy something with store and forward or something like that? Because you know these are, are issues that you do have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, as we as we see time and time again, um, without access to internet. Right. That, that that really, really puts these communities at a disadvantage for just about everything. Education, yeah, sure. health care, telehealth services. These workers likely aren't able to work remotely, even if they wanted to, um, because they don't have reliable access. Um, so this is by no means a problem of yesteryear, <laughs> right, for yeah. hospitals and health systems and employers to take into and, and educators to take in consideration that a lot of the you know broad swaths of the population just don't have access to these tools and resources, and perhaps you know if that um, um, education is being put out there into the community, that may put more pressure on these um, on those people in leadership on these supervisors to maybe start implementing solutions, hopefully, because um, I'm sure, you know, communities are used to not having access to the internet. I mean, they're probably just used to it, you know, and it may take a stronger advocate for them to maybe get them that access that they need, that their leaders are denying them, frankly. Yeah, no, I, and the one thing I will add is I think there is a role for healthcare to play here in terms of partnering with public education, uh, yeah. public, you know, uh, I know in Louisiana, there is uh, uh, several initiatives where uh, some of the public education officials and public health officials and uh, you know the, the local hospitals were partnering trying to set up you know both clinics and broadband access points mm -hmm. at local libraries so people could at least right. have access there so i, th I think that's a, yeah. hopefully a, at least a start in our second article um just you know talking about the fact that you know depression is costing the global economy according to the u.s surgeon general a profound $1 trillion a year, and um, also a, a bit of a depressing article. Um, you know, sorry to, uh, to be a downer before uh, the holidays. Um, and uh, happy Hanukkah uh, tonight for everyone uh, who celebrates. Um, and um, the one thing I would add is, uh, you know, some commentary around the shortage of uh, providers and the ability of people to get care. Um, I do think we are, you know, looking at ways with digital health to provide uh, more and more tools and, and uh, 
uh, you know, wondering, you know, from your perspective and from Redox perspective, um, you know, what are some of the things that can be done to address this, Elizabeth? Right. I well, first of all, I'm really glad, you know, that this is this article is out here because we know the kind of society we live in where money talks, right? And the profit motivator is, you know, the number one priority for a lot of employers, which is absolutely fine. And, you know, that's how our society works. So I really hope that HR departments and resource departments and employer resource groups departments all over the U.S. can now point to this research, right? And advocate for, and advocate um, on behalf of their employee, employees for more resources, right? For more, um, either for more um, um, budget or whatever is necessary in order to address this, however they see it within their employee group, be it um, easier and greater access to um, mental health um, practitioners, ability to maybe give people additional time off as necessary, just like we have sick days. Um, we, we need mental health days, not only introduced as the workplace, but destigmatized. Um, and hopefully, you know, this, when, when we can see the hard numbers that, Hey, you know, our, we're also losing out on that slice of a trillion dollars of lost employee productivity due to untreated or um, unrecognized mental health problems this is the proof that we need to say we need to reinvest into our employees to make sure that um, for better or for worse, you know, that we're reaching the most productivity and the highest possible profit we can on a by through a healthy workforce, you know? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I also know that, you know, this time of year in particular can be a difficult time for people. And so I do yes. encourage you, you know, if you are struggling, you know, please do reach out, you know, either formally, you. you know, to 988, uh, to a friend, um, you know, uh, to to anyone, to uh, you know, if you're uh, particularly a, a young person struggling, reach out to a to a parent, reach out to a, a friend's parent. Um, you know, this is this is you're, you're not alone. Uh, there are people here for you. So uh, please do you know uh, reach out to the appropriate resources. They are there for you. Um, so with that, I I will thank you for joining us. Um, uh, this week's blog uh, at Healthcare Strategy Bullpen is, um, you know, AI and anesthesiology, lowering the risk of surgical complications and adverse outcomes. So I do encourage you to, uh, you know, sign up, obviously, for uh, Diagnosing Health Tech, as well as for our blog. There's a QR code right on the, on, uh, the screen for you to sign up. Please do check us out um, at Healthcare Pen on Twitter. Uh, check us out on LinkedIn. Uh, we are at, at Healthcare Strategy Bullpen. We like to think of ourselves as a Rosetta Stone between the culture and language of healthcare and technology. We help you adapt and deploy healthcare tech to improve the lives of patients. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we will look forward to having you here uh, next week. And with that, I will turn it over to Elizabeth. Thanks, Jeff. It's a great show. Um, Hey everyone, feel free to subscribe to the show, Diagnosing Health Tech, by scanning the QR code on the screen. You'll get weekly invites to the show. And just want to give you a quick reminder that this show is also sponsored by Redox, the healthcare integration platform that specializes in the implementation of big data, AI, and cloud computing. From all of us here at Diagnosing Health Tech, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. Bye.